Welcome back to Generals and Napoleon, episode 58, Archduke Charles, commander of the Austrian army. We have a very special guest joining us all the way from Scotland, my good friend, Dave Hollins. Say hello, Dave. Hello. Hey, thanks for joining us. Um, Dave is an author for uh, several books uh, in the Osprey Collection, including Armies of the Napoleonic Wars, where he did a chapter on the Austrian army. And today we're going to talk about a very talented general from that army, correct, Dave? Uh, yes, he's probably their most famous general, and of course the victor of Aspen over Napoleon. Yeah, Archduke Charles. Um, if you'd like to learn more about Dave, uh, uh, where can they find some of your books, Dave? Um, well, the, 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 there's seven Ospreys, I mean, they're available from Osprey Publishing and all, all good booksellers, as they say. Okay. Uh, there's um, the ABC uh, Clio Encyclopedia of the Rev French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars, which is a three-volume work. I uh, wrote quite a few contributions for that. And okay. then uh, Gregory Fremont Barnes' Armies of the Napoleonic Wars. And that's, I wrote the Austrian section for that right and then also in 2009 uh there was a, a symposium in vienna and unfortunately I, I couldn't make it in the end but um <laughs> somebody read my speech out for me it's my speech is in english uh and it was just called Archduke charles who was he really but the speeches were assembled by uh ferdy verba that's f-e-r-d-i and then verba w-o umlaut b-e-r okay uh, and then if you go to his site and then uh, it's just Ferdi Verba Buchia okay. and uh, you can find uh, the Suzanne Fassel der Beiträger zum Napoleon Symposium Feldzug 1809 im Heres Geschichtlichen Museum <laughs> Wien. <laughs> I, I, I cannot tell you how happy I am that you pronounced all that for me. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, like I said, um, David A. Holland is the author, and he's I'm super happy he agreed to join us today. Um, and we're going to talk about Archduke Charles, who was one of Napoleon's uh, most talented adversaries, wouldn't you say? Uh, yes, in, in many ways. Um, he's a very, in many ways, he's, he's almost the opposite of Napoleon, though. He's a, a great believer in sort of limited war. And mm -hmm. uh, whilst he was he tended to view Napoleon as a kind of short-term problem, that the real issues were kind of Prussia and Russia in the long term. But uh, mm -hmm. he lost patience in 1808 when Napoleon uh, kicked the Spanish uh, king off the throne. Right. Well, let's dive into Archduke Charles. He was born September 1771 in Florence, Italy. And he was the third son of Emperor Leopold and his wife, Mary Luisa of Spain. What was his upbringing like? Obviously privileged, but what was it like? Um, it's rather different from what you might expect because at the time, uh, Leopold was the Grand Duke of, du of Tuscany. It's mm. what they call a secundo geniture, which is kind of, it's the, the emperor's brother would rule it on behalf of, of the empire, but it's, it's not strictly speaking part of the empire. So he could pretty much do his own thing. And he'd actually, he actually disbanded the Tuscan army. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he he's he's a very sort of he's a liberal sort of enlightened ruler and he's 
he knows by this stage that it's quite likely that he'll be emperor because Joseph II, the, the current emperor, um, is um, is having a few problems having children, so he's right. likely to be there one day. And he's kind of he's thinking about things like the constitutional monarchy. And when the French uh, Revolution began, he actually thought it wasn't such a bad idea mm -hmm. um, because it looked like it would become a constitutional monarchy. And he thought that renewal of France would be beneficial to Austria right. because, because they were allied under the 1756 alliance. So it's 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 a very um, it's an enlight it's a fairly typical enlightenment upbringing uh he's initially uh, he's in with uh, his older brothers that's franz and ferdinand mm -hmm. um and they're being looked after uh the, the paola colorado who was a bit of a bit of a relic from the time of maria Theresa, right in the middle of the 18th century but um he he actually concentrated more on franz and ferdinand and so charles was under the was more under the, the tutorship of a chap uh, a major from the infantry called Manfredini mm -hmm. and he's a kind of bit of a bit of a, he, he's a he's a rough and ready guy he's he's done his 30 years in the army he's become a, a Freiherr which is a, a sort of a baronet it's, a, it's the minimum sort of type noble right. title right right um but he and he he's Manfredini organizes uh, a program for him and um, when he's young he does the basic subjects like we all do at school mm -hmm. um, and then in the afternoon it's kind of physical activities starting off with games and that sort of thing and then it builds up to sort of fencing and the, the things that the the nobles do uh, right fencing dancing riding he does he's, and eventually he's doing quite a lot of riding because it's it's good for his rather poor health yeah yeah, and we'll touch on that here in a little bit. Um, he was the younger brother to the future emperor, Francis II, mm. his, his, his older brother. What was their relationship like early on and then as time went on? They were quite close to start off with, but Franz is a, he's, he's a, bit, of a, a bit of a dullard in many ways. He's not <laughs> that intelligent. He's, right. He develops uh, into what the Germans and the Austrians call a, to have a, uh, a Beamter mentality. And a Beamter is a, a sort of low-level public official. Mm -hmm. We've met these, we all know these guys from our own local authorities. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're all rather obsessed with the detail and making an issue out of that without yeah. kind of being able to see the big picture. Yeah. Yeah, like um, a bureaucrat. Yeah. yeah. But the main thing was in 1784, um, when it was quite obvious that Joseph II was going to die childless, mm -hmm. he had Franz uh, brought up to Vienna and trained him in the Joseph the Josephinian way, as it's known, which is kind of enlightened despotism. But mm -hmm. it's all about centralization of the state, bureaucracy, administration, organization, all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But Charles uh, stays in Tuscany until his, his father... Uh, takes over on the death of, of uh, Joseph II in 1790. Right. And so he carries on with this more enlightened education. He, he studies Rousseau, uh, Voltaire, um, people like that, with these, with these kind of fairly liberal ideas. That, that's, an that, that's an interesting point, though, because he never really 
planned or, or had to train to become king at any one point, right? So he could focus on other things. Uh, yeah, he, he, his uh, part of this sort of Jesuit upbringing was that everything was ordained by God and Charles, Charles uh, was a religious uh, person and he wrote right. quite a few religious tracts later in life. Right. Um, and so he, he believed that he was that the emperor was put there by God to do the best for uh, well, the Habsburg possessions and also the Holy Roman Empire. Right. Um, and it was his job was essentially to do whatever he could to support the emperor. Mm -hmm. It's just that Francis was rather ungrateful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we'll get to that as well. Um, like you mentioned, he's well-educated and has a natural talent for military strategy. When did he receive his first baptism of fire in a battle? Was it pretty early on? It was pretty early on. Um, he, was, he was up in Vienna for a, a couple of years after his father became emperor in 1790, but he was adopted by his aunt, Maria Christina, and her husband, Albert of Saxe-Teschen. And they were the governors of the Austrian Netherlands. That's basically Belgium and Luxembourg these days. Mm -hmm. And so he, he went up with them. Um, and Albert uh, took command of the army when war broke out in, in April 92. Mm -hmm. And we know that Charles was kind of attached to his headquarters and, the, and there is a battle at a place called La Giselle, I suppose it is, G-I-U-E, uh, sorry, G-I-U-S-E-L-L-E -L -L -E on right. the 11th of June. But all we know from that really is that Albert sent a report saying that he was uh, calm under fire. So that's about, <laughs> that's about all we know about it. Um, but in terms of, uh, he did have a spell with, with Hohenlohe again, with the headquarters uh, when the Allies initially invaded. But I suppose it, in terms of having a real command, his first command was of a, a Grenadier Brigade at Jemap. Uh, yes, which is a, a loss for the Austrians. Yeah, I mean, they, they, were, they were outnumbered about three to one and uh, they had, <laughs> the French had a lot of heavy artillery. Right. But um, he did well. He was on the right wing and um, the... The French basically smashed smashed through the middle of the Austrian position, mm -hmm. um, but so, so they, they did they did his brigade performed very well, but so yeah, they were they were just overwhelmed, and the French then marched on up to Brussels. Yeah, um, but after that, uh, at the successful battle of near Rinden, he distinguishes himself, and he quickly emerges as one of the best the best commanders in the Austrian army. Um, he did have one weakness, which was his, you mentioned it before, his, his health. He had epileptic seizures. Did these come upon him frequently, uh, like on campaign, or when, when did these happen? Uh, it's, a, it's a myth that they came on him uh, in, in battle. Uh, mm -hmm. It's used by the what they call the dynastic historians, guys writing biographies of him in the run-up to World War One, And uh, they, they were excuses, really, for... for um, the defeats in, in 1809 and mm. also Hilaire Belloc who wrote a little book on Turquoise he relates the story of a, of a British officer turning up to see Charles who was told that uh, Charles was indisposed as he was engaged in having a fit but uh, mm. in actual fact no it's his health is actually quite well documented unfortunately um, a lady 
did a PhD out in Austria, so it's all set out in there. And um, the 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 epileptic attacks started when he was seven, mm-hmm. but they would come usually when he was under a lot of political strain. Right. So you see it. It was particularly bad there uh, at the end of 1800 when uh, he he retired from the army um, mm-hmm. and also 1804 when there'd been a lot of political uh, infighting in court and things things like that um, but yeah. there's, there's no evidence of it in fact um, Groon who was his private secretary and Hoser who was his doctor later on uh, they both say he, he didn't have anything after 1805 but he did have a lot of physical problems he he particularly suffered from rheumatic fever which is a it's where your your immune system attacks healthy cells and it makes right. your blood swell up and it can affect your organs and that sort of thing. And of course, it's right. a, a lot of it's the result of the inbreeding. Yeah. And, yeah I'm, um, I'm glad you pointed out that like there's a difference between having a fit and, you know, an epileptic seizure when you're at home in your castle. That's a big difference, you know. So I'm, I'm glad you pointed that out. And he... Um, it, it's more a case of this rheumatic fever and other other things would mm-hmm. um, they would make him very tired. Mm-hmm. So he didn't have he didn't have Napoleon's stamina. And the mm-hmm. bone could just keep going. Right. Uh, Charles, it would he would get worn out after a campaign, and then or even during a campaign, he would feel very tired, and he would something he would often go to these spas and, and take the waters. Right. Or he'd go off. He went off on a long ride around Bohemia. 1801 to, to, to two. Yeah. So, well, he lived, he lived a long life. He must have been overall healthy. Like he lived a long time. Oh yeah. I mean, he, he was in, he was in good shape. I mean, he, he was only a little bloke I and mean, he was, he was small <laughs> rather than Napoleon allegedly right. being small. He was, he wasn't much over five foot, um, mm-hmm. but he had quite a muscular build, mm-hmm. uh, but it, it is just this physical weakness. And it also, um, a combination of things really he had a rather depressive character when you need mealtime inspiration it's worth shopping kroger where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week you can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points more savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping kroger worth it every time kroger fresh for everyone fuel restrictions apply well i guess things were going well at least initially in 1794 he's promoted to lieutenant field marshal and is active in battles in the low countries uh this seems to be a hot spot for france and austria correct uh yeah it, i mean well it, it's always said that belgium was a creation of british foreign policy <laughs> to keep the french out of the channel ports um, right austria had, had taken the uh what were, were the spanish netherlands um in 1714 under the treaty of utrecht mm-hmm. um and there'd been a lot there was a lot of fighting there in the succession war in the 1740s of course they were allied to the french for the seven years war so it wasn't a problem right. then but yeah this was the first after the after the french had been successful at valmy this was their their first uh, excursion out of france right um, and i see why they would want that 
position because that's right on their border. You know, they, just to cover your northern border, you'd want to have Belgium occupied. Yeah, well, it's, it's it's the push for the Rhine, really. So you go up into Belgium, you 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 then sort of think about going into Germany, but the terrain into Germany is is harder. Right. Uh, Belgium is is more kind of rolling countryside. You right. Know, you see the pictures of Waterloo. You can see you see what it looks like. It's not it's not too bad for for crossing that area, and the roads uh, weren't weren't too bad. And of course, it was the ports like uh, Antwerp. Yeah. Well, in 1796, he kind of finds his groove and he defeats the future Marshal Jordan in a number of actions at Amberg, Wurzburg, and Limburg, driving the French back over the Rhine. He also emerges victorious over a very talented General Moreau. What, what skills do you think made Archduke Charles a successful commander? I think it's a combination of things. I mean, he, he was quite lucky to start off with uh, <laughs> in that he was successful. Uh, he, he led the advance guard mm-hmm. at uh, Aldenhoven and near Vinden just at the start of 1790, March, March 1793. Uh, mm. And he led uh, the, the advance guards and he, he led the cavalry. There was a cavalry, decisive cavalry charge at uh, Aldenhoven, which, which he led in famously with the Latour Dragoons who came, who were actually raised in Belgium. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Avinden, he managed to uh, hang on to the village of Dorsmail when they had a hard, when they were having a hard time and then managed to break out from there uh, as, uh, as Smola uh, smashed up the, one of the French columns and Beliovsky came in to the the, the 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 flank of the French and he, he attacked from the from the front and that's really where where the New England was won, right? But, so his troops he was he was there at the front and of course he was there he was prepared to go to the front. I mean at Stockach, uh, one of his one of his grenadiers grabbed his bridle and said, "No, no, you you, can, you can't go out into the open ground there because the French have got plenty of artillery and you might get your head blown off." <laughs> <laughs> And of course, uh, there at, uh, at Aspern, he's, he's, he rides out in, in yep. amongst IR-15, yep. grabs the flag, famously, yep. and uh, he yep. was out on the ridge. On he the just seems like an organized guy. Like, I mean, he didn't take unnecessary risks, but he knew no. where to position his man. He knew how to line him up in a good position. He just seems like a, a smart guy. Uh, yeah, I, he, I mean, being a, a sort of product of the Enlightenment, he likes... Sort of nice, simple, straight lines. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he he got rather annoyed with Mac, of course, because Mac's plans for Tourquan and Fleurus all went a bit wrong uh, <laughs> because they were elaborate sort of six-column attacks that were going over bad ground and rivers and all this sort of thing. And uh, right, right. So, I mean, the, the 1796 campaign in Germany was is, is a very simple campaign. It's just based on the German road network. Mm-hmm. And so he, he he liked things nice and simple like that. He he did take a fairly mathematical approach to things uh, in terms, but more in terms of, of keeping his uh, supply lines and depots covered. But, right. Um, yeah, he's the main thing with him was that he he was realistic. Mm-hmm. You get a lot of politicians and a lot of French generals as well. They all get a bit kind of carried away. Now we can do this. We can defeat the enemy. All this kind of thing. Right. Charles was realistic, but Austria just didn't have the capacity to take France on on its own. Right. So it was the same with the battles. 
he would only commit the troops he needed to commit. Right. And I think when Vienna or the court would start beating the war drums, it always seemed to me that he was like the realistic one. Like, hey, no, we're not ready to take on Napoleon yet. Let's let's hold off. Yeah. Um, and I, I think right down the sort of tactical level. So his troops knew that, that they wouldn't he wouldn't throw their lives away unnecessarily. He would only right. throw in enough to achieve the objective. That's a great point. And he he's he's kind of one of the last advocates of uh, what you would what you would call limited warfare mm-hmm. before you get into Napoleonic and Clausewitzian style sort of warfare. Um, yeah. And he was he was affected by the, particularly when when he looked around the Aspern battlefield. Yeah, uh, he was affected. He he genuinely was affected, and I think he also he listened to his senior officers. He he relied very heavily on on his senior staff officers and people like Johannes Lichtenstein, as his cavalry commander. So they knew he would listen to them as well. Right, and that makes a big difference. Yeah, he kind of reminds me uh, on the French side of a. Uh... Marshal Sancier, like a, a mathematical kind of analytical yeah. guy, yeah. who who isn't going to waste his men's lives on like fruitless assaults. Yeah, uh, he's yeah. He, he's, the, he's the opposite of the likes of sort of Ney and Murat. He's not a hothead. He's not. He doesn't dress up in fancy uniforms. He he was, <laughs> he was always out in a plain uniform, and right. um, he he didn't wear a lot of decorations and that sort of thing. And he would ride amongst the men and and uh, they, they cheer him along. And of course. To some extent, they relied the the army. You know, of course, they couldn't rely on nationalism because there were so many nationalities in the empire. Right, and uh, so it was kind of this loyalty to the emperor, and in in, in some ways, he he personified the emperor. Right, uh, for for the men, so they they yeah. followed him. And despite you know his great track record in 1796 he kind of meets his match in 1797 when he comes across general bonaparte for the first time and although napoleon would go on to defeat charles many times in battle i think they met five or six times do you think napoleon respected the archduke's abilities it's always very difficult with napoleon (laughs) because (laughs) he will he will tend to say what suits him really Um, he would have been aware of it. I mean, obviously, he would have known uh, what was going on in Germany whilst he was in Italy in 1796. Mm-hmm. So he knew that Charles was a capable commander. But I suppose the most telling thing in many ways was that um, Jordan, who Charles had defeated a couple of times, was the military advisor to Eugène de Beauharnais when he was the viceroy in Italy. Right in right. 1805 and as soon as napoleon got wind of the of the fact that charles was going to be commanding in italy he uh, he pulled jordan and uh, put Massena <laughs> in in his place so i think he would have he would have considered him somewhere around that sort of Massena level gotcha obviously okay. not as brilliant as, as himself uh, and i think he he probably felt charles was perhaps a bit too cautious but right. he, did, he did ask metternich uh, if, if Charles would uh, would command in 1812 in Russia. Ah, and uh, yeah, clearly he did not. No. So, yeah. Um, in 1799, though, Austria was again at war with France, and Archduke Charles defeats Jordan again and Massena at the First Battle of Zurich, but Austria was ultimately defeated by their losses at Marengo and at Hohenlinden. And this Austrian force at the last battle was led by 
Charles's brother, Archduke John, who was the less talented of the two brothers. Why was John not as skilled militarily as Charles? Uh, well, it, oh, it's a combination of things, really. I mean, at, at Hohen Linden, he was only 18 years old. Ah. So he was really just a figurehead. Right. Uh, he had no military experience at all. Mm -hmm. um, and he was a bit of a dreamer. <laughs> <laughs> he, yeah. very much, he very much got into the kind of German nationalism that took hold before the 1809 war. And, yeah. You know, he got behind that. But he, yeah, I mean... He was he was more like Franz. You know, he wasn't an intellectual. Uh, he was he wasn't a bad administrator. Uh, mm -hmm. he, was, he did a lot of work on the fortifications in the Tyrol in the run up to eighteen oh five, and he did defend some of the passes there. Um, and he, he didn't do too well too badly yeah. in Italy in eighteen oh nine at first, but of course he got absolutely hammered at uh, Rav there right. in the middle of June. So. Yeah, yeah. He, he just he hasn't got the experience. He hasn't got the ability, basically. It's funny you mentioned the word dreamer, though, because like where Charles was a realist, I wonder if John mm. was just kind of kind of the, the commander would tell you, oh, yeah, we'll be there in time for that battle. And then he wasn't, you know, yeah. like and, and it seemed to happen a lot. Like at Vagram, he didn't get there until the very end. Uh, well, <laughs> to yeah. some extent, I think Charles's staff were, were, were at fault for that, for not calling him in quickly enough. But right. he didn't fall over himself. OK. Um, I mean, there are stories about John perhaps thinking about what would happen if the empire was, was broken up and which uh, he, he, you know, he needs to have some troops to make sure he got a bit of it anyway. Right. And there, there is supposed to have been a scheme he dreamed up with uh, Hormeyer, who was a sort of German nationalist poet, idealist. Interesting. In the Tyrol okay. about becoming the king of, oh, it's, it's Ratia, it's an old Roman name for sort of South Bavaria, Tyrol, Northern Italy. Yeah, um, it's going to be the king of race here, but <laughs> that didn't happen apparently. No, no, no. Right. I mean, it's... So he, he wasn't really. <laughs> he, I mean, he was ten years younger than Charles, so he's he very much in awe and, and just right. wishing. It, it's kind of a sort of mini me thing. I, I want, I want to be like <laughs> you, but uh, I haven't really got the talent to do it. Right, right. Well, uh, moving along in our story. Mm. Um, Austria was again humbled by Napoleon in the 1805 campaign of the Third Coalition, and this time Massena defeated Archduke Charles at the Battle of Caldero. Do you think it was around this time that Charles realized the Austrian army needed major reforms, and what were some of those reforms? The, the reforms, uh, I mean, they, they start really uh, after, the, after they, they lost Silesia in the Succession War mm -hmm. in the 1740s. You get this more important chief of staff, the artillery gets overhauled and it's much lighter. Um, and then they have the major reforms that are usually known as the 1769 reforms, where the chief of staff's role is, is set out um, more clearly, the, the army's more centralised, more standardised kit and all that kind of thing. Yeah, they, they actually have drill regulations that are used across the entire army. So that process is going on and then they set up the Nostich Renek um, committee, which later became the Unterberger one, which introduced the 1798 pattern uniform, new muskets, that sort of thing. But what actually happened, it, 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 it again, it's one of these things with, because so much of Austria is seen through French, through the French prism. Right. Um, there is this idea, oh yes, well, of course, the Austrians reacted to their defeat at the hands of Napoleon at Austerlitz and, and, and 
generally in 1805. Right. But in actual fact, Charles, at the end of the, the just after Ho and Linden, uh, in January 1801, he writes a, a long memorandum to Franz, which um, famously said, uh, an empire like Austria does not collapse without shaking all of Europe in its death throes, which is pretty prophetic stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, yeah. He, he said, everything needs overhauling, the government, the army, the economy, everything. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. he, he actually starts off, uh, he, he becomes the Minister of War, and he also gets the presidency of the Hofkriegsrat, which is the military administrative body. Uh, right. And he then, he, he the reforms begin then. He's got Mac looking at the infantry and Philip Groon looking at the cavalry. Right. And so they were actually pre preparing uh, the, the reforms. The problem was the empire was broke. And most right. of the troops were either on furlough or they were sort of road gangs and that sort of yeah. thing. Hired yeah. out for, for, for civil engineering. So, they yeah, you and, I, you and I were talking before the call about the role of the chief of staff, which mm. was really expanded and it, it really frees up the commanding general to focus on strategy, where you have this chief of staff who's doing like all the logistics and handling of the men, right? Like it, it gives him more yeah. time to focus on battle. That's right. I mean, Charles, it, it's. It partly, it originally it grew out, uh, it was apparently, it was according to Chris Duffy, it was a suggestion by the, the French ambassador uh, in 1757 that mm -hmm. as they didn't have a, a Prince Eugène of Savoy from the, from the Spanish succession war, uh, mm -hmm. they, they needed to make the chief of staff more powerful. I don't, I don't know how much of that is myth, but they certainly started looking at that because right. they hadn't got a Prince Eugène. And it suited Charles because of his physical weakness, particularly the, the fatigue he suffered from. Um, right. If he had a good chief of staff and good senior staff officers, he could offload the work onto them. I mean, he's got a, a, a civilian assistant called Matthias von Fassbender, who, who does a lot of the civilian work. Uh, he arranged for a big survey of the empire, so they had an idea of the empire's resources and all this kind of thing. No, that's and, a great example, I think. And and Abraham Lincoln did the same thing. He he hired right. he hired men that were more talented than him to kind of carry out his policy. Right. Yeah. Yes. It's it's the same thing. Charles is quite prepared to delegate. He's he's the exact opposite of Napoleon, who was kind of had his finger in every pie. Mm -hmm. Well, um, in 1809, Austria again went to war with France, and this time, Archduke Charles is a field marshal, and after. Initial setbacks at Abensburg, Landshut, and Ekmold, Charles handed Napoleon his first defeat in a decade at the epic battle of Aspernesling. Why was Charles triumphant in this particular battle? Well, to some extent, actually, it's the chief of staff. Uh, he, he'd had a guy called Prochaska rather foisted upon him at the start mm -hmm. of the campaign. Um, Prochaska basically lost his head during, <laughs> during Ekmold. Um, right. He just lost control of it completely. Mm -hmm. And uh, once Charles had retreated back into uh, Bohemia, which is sort of now the Western Czech Republic, going back along the northern side of, of the Danube there, mm -hmm. uh, he, he probably booted Prochaska out of headquarters. <laughs> and uh, Max Wimpfen, who was then the um, general adjutant, uh, moved over and became the chief of staff. And he was a, he was a more able 
chief of staff. He wasn't brilliant, but he was more able. And Charles is in a fairly static position at Aspern. Um, he doesn't have to worry too much about his lines of supply. Um, right. they're, they're basically run back into Bohemia and Moravia, which is the Eastern Czech Republic. Mm -hmm. um, and so he, he's, he's got more time to focus on the battle. Um, yeah. But the, they do actually, the battle is kind of, um, that their plan is, is, is kind of off balance because what they thought the French were going to do was come over Lobau and then go up, the back up the, the river uh, to Schwarzenachenau which is the bridgehead across the old uh, Danube uh, bridges, which mm -hmm. they'd been burned. Mm -hmm. but they thought they, they, were, they were going to go up there. And so they, they expected to, the French to come up through Aspern and then through Herkstetten and then come along the, along the riverbank there. Right. And so the idea was like a sort of pincer movement of, of three of the corps as they came out through Herkstetten. But of course, the, the French actually only went as far as Aspern. <laughs> Yeah, um, I know, and I know Bonapartists will tell me that you know Napoleon had the bridges taken out and he was fighting with the river against his back. But you know, Archduke Charles—that's not his problem. He saw the French army against the river and he attacked, which I think was the right move. Oh yeah, I, he's he's very much influenced. People uh, uh, tend to forget this, but he Charles himself was very influenced by by Eugene of Savoy. Mm -hmm. Um, and his big victory over the Turks was at a battle called Zenta in 1697. And that mm -hmm. was a very similar situation. He caught the Turks kind of halfway across the river. Mm -hmm. And Charles, Charles actually wrote after the battle, after Aspern, he said, I've manoeuvred on this plane as against the Turks. So it's clearly a reference to Zenta. Right. But he, what he did once they kind of realized what was happening, he, he knew there was no point really piling in to start uh, straight away. Mm. Because if you only defeat 10,000 men, it's not going to make that much difference. Right. So he was intent on allowing a reasonable chunk of Napoleon's army over, small enough for him to, to defeat, but big enough to, to have an effect on it. But this is, Charles is always open to new ideas. Right, uh, because of his kind of enlightenment background, when the engineers came to him and said, "Look, we could—they're building these bridges. Mm -hmm. What we've got to do is chuck some stones and barges mm -hmm. and get some of these water mills, which are like—they're um, like—they're like, they're like um, the, the, the water mills are, are, are on, a, on, a, on a river, but they're, yeah. they're, they're horizontal rather than vertical, and they just right. suck them in the river. Right. And just set those free as well. They can go down and smash the bridges up." Uh, to delay the French uh, coming across. Yeah. But of course, as the French uh, start to get the troops across, they start building up in the center and they, they um, try to break out on the 21st and the 22nd. And yeah. Charles is, is having to push uh, Hohenzollern's two corps out across the plain to hold the French advance. But they, they initially go in what they call battalion massa, which are... Um, closed up columns on the company frontage. Yeah. So they're 18 ranks deep and they were getting quite badly smashed up yeah. by the French artillery. So they, they, he was breaking them down into divisions master, either on a half company or a full company frontage, just, just so that they could fill the gap. Yeah. And, and not, not take so much damage from the artillery. 
I thought he did a fine job. And I think it was only the heroics of Marshalls, Massena, Lon, and Bessier that saved the day. Otherwise, they would have been thrown in the river. Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's no doubt the French, the French put up uh, a, a, an excellent fight, particularly uh, Massena around Aspern, because that really was the key to the position. As soon as the Austrians had secured Aspern on the 22nd, that was it. It was over because they yeah. were just going to move in artillery and just smash the entire French line. And so the Poland yeah. had to pull out. But yeah. Well, yeah. It was just, it's an interesting battle to study, but um, obviously Napoleon, you know, kind of gets a bloody nose and he pulls back, you know, into Vienna and Labau. But oddly, Charles elects not to follow up his victory. And Napoleon has several weeks to call in reinforcements to Vienna and rebuild his army. Why do you think Charles didn't attack Napoleon when he had his back against the wall? Um, essentially, it's because he'd taken a lot of casualties and they'd mm -hmm. lost a lot in Germany. Mm -hmm. So he didn't really have an awful lot to reinforce his army with. Uh, the 3rd Battalions had been marched away just before Aspern. They're in Bohemia for more drill and they could have them back. But beyond that, there's just, just the Lockbear Battalions. He's, he's not got that big a force. And of course, he would have the opposite problem that Napoleon had had. He's got to get, he's got to build a bridge somewhere. And the French could do exactly the same thing. They could smash his bridges up and, uh, and stop him getting across. Yeah. But Charles was also, uh, they knew that Wellington was advancing in Portugal. And it was kind of, they weren't sure exactly what the Russians were going to do. Right. Um, and so he was kind of hoping he, that was one of his failings was he didn't understand that Napoleon had to win. Mm -hmm. Charles is quite happy to compromise. If there's a victory or a sort of semi victory or something like that, then the, they could kind of get together and make a peace treaty and that would be it. Right. But of course, Napoleon had to keep winning. He had to be the top dog. Otherwise he was out on his ear. Right. <laughs> <laughs> And this all led to the huge battle of Wagram, which was a very close run loss for the Austrians. And there were many reasons for the loss, including the late arrival of Archduke John to the battlefield. And after um, a secondary battle at uh, Zanang, um, peace is declared with France, and Charles gives up all of his military positions. Mm. Was he just sick of war at this point? Or was he disgusted with his brothers? Um. I think it was a combination of things. Uh, as, as I said, he, uh, when we were talking earlier, mm -hmm. he went out on the battlefield at Aspern and it was in the past, he'd always kind of moved on from his battlefields and they'd be much smaller armies anyway. Right. Um, but he saw the devastation and he wrote a letter actually on, on the battlefield the day after the, the battle. And he's obviously shocked by what he sees. Mm -hmm. So many casualties. Right. And, and again, of course, he, he, it's even worse at Wagram. Mm -hmm. But really, it was, a, it was more a case of Fra Franz basically told him to resign. Mm. Franz's yeah. kind of attitude was, I'll get a bunch of guys and they'll give me the solution and they'll, you know, it's all great until it all goes wrong. Uh, that will get sacked and a new lot coming. Well, it, it must have been awkward for Charles because, you know, he's the commander of the army and he's mm. always telling Francis to not go to war with Napoleon. Francis ignores him. They go to war with Napoleon and they lose. So Archduke Charles is probably like, look, you don't listen to me. You don't give me enough troops to win these battles. What am I doing out here? Yeah, uh, he I, I think he, he had enough of the political infighting as well, because 
Stadion, the, the foreign minister, who, who was also swept away at the end of the war, but Stadion had been giving him a hard time and undermining him during the retreat from Bavaria as well. Mm-hmm. So I think he, he really just had enough. But he, I mean, he, uh, Napoleon did ask Metternich uh, to ask him if he would command in 1812, and Charles wrote that he just washed his hands like Pontius Pilate. <laughs> And would have nothing to do with it, but he did offer to command in 1813. Okay, and the Tsar was quite keen. But France, um, there's a bit of jealousy. There's there is this thing about I've swept the previous lot away. I'm going to focus on on the new guys. Uh, A bit of bit of jealousy and a a popular one of a popular brother. And of course, there were rumours from 1805 that Napoleon had offered Charles the, the imperial throne. Ah, interesting. And, and so there was always there was quite a lot of uh, suspicion uh, yeah. on front. He was he was a naturally sort of suspicious person. Yeah, I, I don't blame him. Yeah. So, like you mentioned, um, Austria joins the Sixth Coalition during the 1813-1814 campaign, but Charles is not given a command, and he lives out the rest of his life in retirement. What does he do in his later years? I know he gets married in 1815. Yeah, he um, he was he was made the governor of Mainz. Uh, in uh, West Germany there uh, for a few months in 1815. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when he met uh, Henrietta Maria of Massau Weilberg, who was a, a local aristocrat. And yes, they were married very quickly. She was only 18 years old. He was 44. Oh, wow. <laughs> it, it, was, it was a very happy marriage. Good, good. Did they um, have children? I don't they, had, they had six children. Okay. Um, unfortunately, she died. Uh, she died in 1829. Okay. Uh, so so he, he was left with with, with uh, six small children. Yeah. But he kind of went into retirement anyway. Um, he inherited um, Duke Albert of Saxe-Teschen's mm-hmm. estates, and he Albert actually um, he owned the Albertina Palace, which is a very famous, now it's a very famous art museum because Albert was a, was a big uh, art collector. Mm-hmm. So he, he was looking after the Albertina as well. And he built a castle, which is called the Weilberg. It was destroyed in the second world war. And it, mm-hmm. it, it looked like uh, Henrietta's home. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, he was, he was an avid gardener as well. <laughs> roses, <laughs> were, roses were his particular favorite. But okay. the, the other thing he did really was he he, he then started writing histories mm-hmm. of campaigns that he'd fought and also assessments of other campaigns to uh, instruct his, his male children uh, in their future military careers. Okay. Well, um, I know he passes away in Vienna in 1847. And the next question is kind of a tricky one, but because he lost several battles to Napoleon, but defeated him once and defeated several of his marshals. Mm-hmm. What do you think his legacy was? I think it's a hidden legacy. Uh, it is this, uh, the, the, the problem with Austria is that uh, it, it's been clouded out because of the wars of the 20th century have made mm-hmm. many, many writers turn away from, from the Germanic sources. And mm-hmm. so they don't see that this is where the, the modern general staff starts. Right, that Charles is developing it, and so that the chief of staff becomes a, a real king kingpin. It's not that mythology of Napoleon and Berthier, mm-hmm. and also that they did um, Meyer, who was the uh, chief of staff in the run up to the eighteen oh nine war. He um, 
he looks very closely at the core system and they do try and set up a core system as it will be developed by the Prussians later on. Charles said he, he wanted his core commanders to know what he wanted just from the look on his face. Right. So he is devolved. It, it is this devolving the power out as well. So people don't realize what, what he left behind. And also in his writings, um, there was a guy called it was Halleck, I think, in the American Civil War. Mm -hmm. And he was the only one who followed Charles, and they all reputedly had a copy of Jomini in, the, in their pockets. Mm. Um, but Jomini actually translated Charles's works on 1796 and 1799. So it's an interesting question that's never been gone into. How much was Jomini influenced by translating Charles's work? Right. And, it's not and, just that he was the synthesis of Napoleonic warfare. Yeah, and we were talking earlier uh, before the call. Just I think the Austrian army, you know, obviously they lose to Napoleon several times, and I think they're depicted as these the generals at least as these bumbling fools. But they weren't. They were talented soldiers and generals in the Austrian army. Uh, yes, they were. I mean, a lot of them uh, had had, a, had fought in the Seven Years' War, mm -hmm. but they were getting older. Mm -hmm. um, but you do have, it, a lot of it is down to the chiefs of staff. Mm -hmm. uh, you need to look more closely at them. People say Charles is, is his performance is uneven. Well, look at, look at who his chiefs of staff were. Right. When he had a good one, he was fine. When he when he didn't, it all went a bit horribly wrong. <laughs> and you touched on something earlier that you know it wasn't just like all of France going to war with a bunch of Frenchmen who spoke French. You know, this was many different nationalities mm. in the Austrian army who didn't all speak the same language. Yeah, I, they couldn't, for obvious reasons, they, they couldn't appeal to nationalism in the mm -hmm. way that the French could. Mm -hmm. They couldn't, um, because of this kind of balancing act, the, the, the Austrian monarch, who later became the, the Austrian emperor in 1804, there's a balancing act. There's certain areas in the west uh, of the empire are, are pretty much under kind of fairly absolute rule. Mm -hmm. although there are some assemblies and that sort of thing. But you go out into the east, the Hungarian Diet, um, which was a kind of a noble assembly, bishops and other landowners and that sort of thing, it's, uh, it, it, it's very powerful itself. And the, the nobles didn't want their, their sort of biggest, toughest blokes being dragged away from agricultural work and being taken into the army and sort of never coming back. Right. And uh, so... It was very limited, uh, the, 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 uh, what they could get from Hungary. They had to agree that a certain number of Hungarian troops would be in the army and then the requisite level of volunteers uh, that would have to be taken each year to keep the, the Hungarian section up, uh, right. up, up to size. Um, so there are these, these limits. I mean, Charles was all in favour of uh, expanding conscription. Uh, mm -hmm. In 1802, as part of uh, part of his initial reforms of the army, yeah, uh, and but that was viewed as a step too far, and the Hungarians were obviously going to resist it, right? And you've got some, you've got populations of Serbs and Poles and people like that who've that part of them are in the empire, and part of them are outside the empire, right. right? And so there was almost that pull away as well, yeah. Well, I think Charles did as well as any of the Austrian generals, and you know, in his fights against you know the genius that was Napoleon. So I, I just don't think he gets enough credit for what he did accomplish in in, in his commanding days. 
No, he doesn't. Um, it tends to be, yes, well, he defeated Napoleon at Aspen, but yes, as Napoleon said, it was the Danube that defeated us. Right, right. And it is his focus on limited war. Right. Has, of course, come back into faction war since about 1945. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, that's, but yeah, there is no English biography of him. Right. Well, that might be your next book right there. There you go. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I've tried two or three times. Uh, it, it gets so complicated because uh, people aren't familiar with the sort of cast of characters. Right, yeah. Let alone the political system and everything else. Yeah. It's, it's not it's an a, easy job. No, I, I know firsthand. It's a lot to cover. Well, um, thank you, Dave, for all of that. That was a great overview. Very informative. And um Again, if you'd like to uh, buy some of Dave's books, um, you anywhere you can find books or books that he's contributed to is David A. Hollins is the author's name. And uh, yeah, thank you, my friend. That was really great stuff. A pleasure talking to you, John. And uh, thank you for, for running your podcast. I know how much uh, work that you and, and Alex and, and others put into these podcasts. So I'm quite happy to contribute and bang the drum for Austria, as I've said elsewhere. <laughs> well, I appreciate you banging that drum for Austria and uh, and for the podcast. So thank you, Dave, and uh, we'll talk soon. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks very much. Bye-bye, John.